This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to the winner. It's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with Richard Lawson. Hello. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. Uh, Richard, we're going to start with you. You have an interview with the one, the only Patty Lapone. Um, and I think you were uh, justifiably a, a little nervous to talk to a true icon of theater who knows how to command a conversation probably better than anyone else. But from what I hear, she was a delight. Yes, she was very nice. I had, <laughs> I was quickly reminded that like, the Patty Lapone of like, you know, bootleg audio of her yelling at audience members is when she's interrupted while singing Rose's turn in Gypsy. <laughs> and when she's doing an interview for a film that she is proud of, like it's a whole different vibe. So that was a relief. Um, that said, I probably was still a little bit cowed by her. So I don't think I got like too deep with uh, Ms. Lapone. But she had lots of interesting things to say about working in, on this film, Bo is Afraid in particular, but also just kind of where she's at in her career, whether or not she wants to lean toward theater or TV or film. And um, so, yeah, it was just interesting to catch up with a legend who is kind of, you know, developing a new chapter of her career. Does it seem like we'll get to see her in more movies? I think she would certainly hope so. She said she definitely wants to work with um, Ari Aster, who directed Bo is Afraid again. Um, and she's filming a Marvel show right now. Um, she is in Agatha Coven of Chaos, which is the spinoff starring Catherine Hahn from uh, WandaVision. So she couldn't say much about that, obviously, but uh, she's she's got something big coming. Uh, well, before we get to see her on a Marvel show, let's hear your conversation with Patty Lapone. Well, Patty Lapone, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much, Richard. So I want to start with... The beginning of Bo is Afraid. How did you get involved in this wild project? <laughs> well, my manager said that Ari Aster wanted to have a meeting with me. And I said, who's Ari Aster? And my kid said, oh, I, I told my kid I have a meeting with a gentleman by the name of Ari Aster. And my kid said, he's the man, mom. He mm -hmm. is the man. And so I was confused. I mean, when my son Joshua told me uh, the, the films, I watched the films and I was confused why I was, I was chosen to have this Zoom. And so I asked Ari and he told me that he's friends with Clara Mamet, David Mamet's daughter, and that he saw me on Broadway in a play by David called The Anarchist. And he talked about my use of David's language. And we had a lovely talk. That was our mutual connection, the Mamet family. And then I got the part. 
What kind of conversations did you have once you accepted the part? Because Mona is such an interesting figure. Is she a figment of Bo's mind? Is she real in that moment? Is she just a manifestation of his anxieties about his real mother, who is not with us anymore? How did you kind of suss out who to play in the scenes that you're in? We had extensive conversations in Montreal. We had one very long conversation in Montreal where I actually lost the plot. And at the end of it, I asked Ari if his brain hurt. <laughs> at which point he said yes. Um, ultimately, Richard, I, as, as an actor, I'm only responsible for the playwright's words. And it's quite clear how Mona feels from the very beginning, from the birth. She's an anxious woman. She says that she desperately wanted a child. And you can see through her business that she was overly protective of the child she wanted. And, 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 and Zoe Lister, who plays the younger Mona, actually says it. She does everything she can to protect, in her mind, protect the child. Um, it's extreme. And I think this is all in... Ari's mind, if that is answering your question. This is, um, he's not projecting. Right, right. And um, it's a fantastic part. There is a, an, an emotional arc to this. However, any, anybody comes away from Mona. I, I, I think she is a damaged woman at the hands of her mother. And unfortunately, she visits that onto her son. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't see her as a villain. I see it very human and um, flawed, very flawed. Yeah, I mean, I think the careful thing that the movie and Mona kind of express in these final scenes is that while Mona is pretty scary and, you know, gives this towering speech to her son, some of the stuff she's saying feels correct <laughs> about this guy that we've just spent, you know, two hours with. Did you bring in any of your own sort of experience as a parent into that? Or is this wholly just you, you know, inhabiting the words provided to you by Aster? How much of yourself did you bring into it? Well, you know, I'll tell you, I, I think I've discovered, I, I think if I understand now the definition of method acting, I, I've discovered after all these years, I am a method actor. Um, of course, it came out of me and my experience, but I haven't had that kind of <laughs> right. I really haven't had that kind of experience, but I think I could relate to some of it through my own family, my parents. I don't think I've visited this on my kid, and that's a question you could ask my son. He actually did answer it for someone who said, of all the characters my mother has played, this is the person I don't know. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a good review. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's trauma in my life from my childhood, from my parents. And the rage I have is ancestral. And this is a rage that's been in my, you know, a DNA, being a Sicilian woman, you know, a, a Bruzzese Sicilian, Southern Italian. Uh, I think that I just drew on that. And there's some stuff in there that, that I could say happened in my life. I mean, I would have to look at the speech again and tell you, you know, because right. it's a three-page monologue. I'd have to go back and say, oh, yeah, that came from my life. Or, yeah, that I'm imagining. I wouldn't say a lot of it came from my life. I didn't have a traumatic childhood. But 
I am pulling from experience and and sort of imagined experience, you know. But the rage is real. Rage right. is just innate. This is stuff that's in in my body. I uh, went to Sicily with my mother last summer, and we made a pilgrimage to her family's little hometown. It was really it was interesting because she has a very rare Sicilian, uncommon last name, but there on a wall in this little town was her family name. And she said, I'd never seen that before. So it was pretty oh my God. pretty cool to trace those Sicilian roots. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, how great. Yeah, it's, I guess that it is a real cultural thing, I guess. And I guess there is, I mean, I don't want to step too far in this direction, but there is some similarity between that sort of upbringing and the sort of Jewish-American, Italian-American, you know, that, that there's a sort of, I guess you could say, kind of cultural pain uh, of different sorts, obviously, but work in concert with one another when you're asked to play, you know, some version of, of Ari Aster's, you know, imagined mother, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think de- definitely. Also, I think the fact that, that I'm a woman and I grew up in a certain era when I, if I asked a question that was not acceptable, I was the subject of their rage. Right. Right. Which created a lot of my rage. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's sort of, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, you know, or unleash the, 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 cultural rage. I was curious, you you mentioned the, the three to four page monologue, um, which is something that's so striking about this huge scene is it really is you talking, you know, for minutes at length. Obviously, that's more common on the stage, a long monologue like that. But this is a film very much. I mean, it's high cinema. How did it compare to recent stage work you've done? Did you find that you were exercising similar muscles or was it, is it yeah. a totally different experience to be on set? No, on a film set? I think you're absolutely right. I think well, it's not that I was exercising similar muscles. I had developed those muscles and put them into play. Right. Do you know, I, I, this is the best film role I have ever had. Um, and the fact that I have theatrical muscle just helped me understand it, create it, you know, shape it and then deliver it. Do you have like specific memories from being on set? Like how many times did you have to go through that, that piece of writing? You know, how many takes did this require? Because it would seem like it's, it's invigorating, but also kind of taxing to do. It's, it's a big moment. It was never taxing. It was always exciting. And there was, and Ari did a lot of takes of one part. I can't remember what part he said. And he said, because every take was different. And that's, my strength of as an as an actor that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm versatile, and I don't do anything the same way twice. And it's not because I don't remember what I did, but there's there's so much variety in one line. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and so I was I was it was the way I was trained as an actor, and so I gave him several different interpretations, and he told me, and it wasn't like what more do you want? He eventually said to me, "I'm taking so many takes, Patty, because every take is different." And that's a compliment. Is that something that while you're delivering the piece of text, are you in real time saying, oh, maybe next time I'll do it this way or say it that way? Or is it just, how do you, how do you describe how you do the next take differently? Do you know what I mean? Like, Yes, I do. It's, it's instinctual. It's, yeah. it's something that sort of happens. And you, there might be discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be discovery in the last take, or there might be just a different breath. I've taken a different breath. But it's spontaneous. I think it's more spontaneous than it is thought out. It's variety. And I, I enjoy that variety. I enjoy being able to to go, well, wait a minute. Yeah, because if it was more planned out, it would just be rote. You would just be reciting. 
you know, then you don't need to do a lot of tanks. Right, or right. You, get, you, get, you get stale after five. We did do a lot of takes of. I remember the first day I was working with uh, Joaquin. He's descending the staircase, and I've turned the corner. You know, I've said, "Is your head okay?" And then I said, "You're in my house." And then I come across, and I said, "I've seen everything, but I can't remember that what what is after that." But it's when I start to berate him, and we had to do that several times. Mm. But I also was aware of the fact this was my first day working, really working with Joaquin in that scene. I had done the previous work before, but you know the the ladder uh, and ending the the bathtub scene. But this was now we were in the scene, and there was one part of the speech that was I was berating him, and I came at him the same way every single time, and it's you know with the energy level, and I think they were all surprised that I had that, that I could come at him with that same energy level but it was my first day of work and i wanted to it wasn't i wasn't exhausted i was just getting started that's got to be a great and sometimes i'm sure rare feeling to be that you know sort of excited about a piece of material like that yeah oh yeah i couldn't wait i could not wait so I'm curious what you sort of think about the conclusion of the film in general, considering that your character is such a big part of that. Is this ultimately at the end with the rowboat? Like, is this a story of catharsis for Bo? Is it a story of ruin? Uh, I, I, what's your interpretation of, of how this very peculiar film ends? Well, I would say it's a story of ruin. Yeah. I think she kills him. Yeah. So I would say it's a story of ruin. It's, and it's certainly not, I mean, you don't see it, but the very last part when we're up way in, the, you can see us way in the distance. I scream, no, my baby. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which has been cut from the film. Um, her anger at him and his indecisiveness is the deciding factor. And I think she destroys him. She destroys herself. But she's already destroyed. The two of them are destroyed. Now, she's destroyed by her mother, and she destroys her kid. He's destroyed by his mother. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. So I know that you're, you know, you've been in Atlanta filming for the Wanda, the the Agatha show, excuse me. Um, And, you know, you've done some American Horror Story recently. I'm curious what sort of work is really interesting you these days. Um, it seems to be on on film and on, on TV. How are you sort of seeking projects out and, and making choices about what you want to do? Well, you know, years ago, I gave up actually trying to get a role because it, the, the disappointment was extremely hard to take. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a, our profession is just a series of rejections. And I was tired of crying. And I finally realized the only thing that, I should be playing is what comes to me. And that has always surprised me. What has come to me has been 
I can't believe what it, I mean, let's start with Nellie Lovett and Sweeney Todd. I just went, excuse me? I never thought that that would be my first Sondheim role. I had no idea what would be or if there would be. Right. But Nellie Lovett was not at the top of the list. So if I don't project, if I don't desire a part, the ones that come in are the ones I'm supposed to play. And I have always been left of left of center and prefer, um, you know, the, the Jersey Grotowski theater from the Eastern Bloc than anything that you know, democracy theater um, <laughs> can produce. And so it seems to be coming in my direction. I want to do more film. I don't know how that's going to manifest itself. I don't want to be on stage, or at least I don't want to be on the Broadway stage anymore because I just first, I can't get to Broadway because I have to negotiate Times Square. And then I don't know what Broadway is anymore. I think it's, you know, turning into, it's in transition and I don't particularly care for the direction it's heading. Mm -hmm. I will do theater, but I'd rather do it pop up, you know, go on to East 4th Street, do it at the UN. You know, I'd rather have that be interesting to me, an interesting place to do it. I mean, even Marvel was a shock. I was sitting in my kitchen going, I wonder what direction my career is going to go. Ring, hello, Marvel calling. Well, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not Marvel, it's Jack Schaefer. And Mm -hmm. Jack Schaefer is the creator, writer of WandaVision. And this is the spinoff. And it's her. And I don't, I can't, I am thrilled to death that it's a female writer and what she has written that I get to play, that we all get to play. Yeah, a Marvel project like that, a TV project like that is so interesting because it's television, it's much more writer driven than a movie would be, which is, you know, there are so many moving parts and, you know, the studio notes and all that stuff. And so I, I think you found the best way, one of the best ways maybe to be part of that world, because you do have this sort of one creator's vision to work with, I would think. Yes, absolutely right. And all nine scripts were written before oh, we started. So you knew where you were going. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've talked to a lot of theater actors who have have also worked in television. And one of the great frustrations for them is like, you don't really know. You don't, you're playing only a little part of a character's arc because you have no idea where it leads to. So in this case, you at least have some idea of the, exactly. of the end. Which I won't grill you about because I know it's top secret. <laughs> well, I got in trouble. The Marvel security said, Patty, I'm not talking. <laughs> <laughs> They were nice about it because they saw how enthusiastic I am about it. What are they going to say? You know, I know they want to keep it under wraps, but they weren't going to, they didn't yell at me or he didn't. He had a big smile on his face. And I said, well, what what do I say then? He said, you can say that security asked you not to say anything. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You, it's not your, it's not you, it's, it's them. Um, so you've got that. You, um, I'm so excited for more people to see Bo as it opens in more and more theaters across the country. Um, and this, you know, as you mentioned, your, your son had sort of said, oh, Ari Aster, that's, you know, he's the guy. Do you have a filmmaker that you're well aware of already who you would love to sit down with and see if you can collaborate on something? Is there someone that, you know, whose movies you seek out? I guess there's a lot of them, but, you know, Wes Anderson, but I'd like to, I'd like, I want to be in Ari's world. I want Ari yeah. to know that I want to be in Ari's world. This was an incredible experience with him as the writer and the director. 
but yeah, uh, I, I love Wes Anderson's work. I mean, I don't, I, I don't know the names of all of the filmmakers, but I tend to go for the indie film and the sort of the left of center, uh, as I said earlier. But the ones that I really wanted to work with are dead. Yeah, I would have. I, I am a Fellini face. If I could have worked with Federico Fellini, Francois. Better, yeah. um, Bernardo Bertolucci. If I could have worked with the European directors, I would have, I would have been in heaven. I always felt my career was in Europe because of my face, which when I was growing up was not exactly acceptable. I could definitely see you on the Cannes red carpet, arm in arm with some of the one of the great, you know, Euro it's masters. And also, you know, the theater you were talking about, the sort of more, I, I grew up um, going to the American Repertory Theater back when it was run by Robert Woodruff. And so you'd go see Pericles, but directed by some Eastern Bloc director, and it was all wacky and weird. And so that was sort of the theater of my childhood. And so I can relate to what you're saying about that more independent theater being the, the, the thing it really calls to you. And we don't have that anymore. And and it, the yeah. theater now, it seems to, I mean, whoever they are that dumbed down the audience did a very good job because now the audience is only going to see what they quote unquote know. Right, right. Yeah, there's no ideas to stimulate us. Yeah. Well, in the meantime, TV and film are lucky to have you. <laughs> and um, we were lucky to have you on this on this podcast. And um, congrats on the role. It really is extraordinary. If people listening to this haven't yet seen Bo is Afraid, go see it. Ms. Lapone is remarkable in it. And thank you for talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Rebecca, let's hear your conversation with Jason Siegel, who is not only a star on Shrinking, which is the first show he's done in quite a while, but he was deeply involved in the production of it, um, which I think you guys got into because this is now all happening in the context of the writer's strike. Yeah, it was a weird time to talk to him because he is the co-creator. He created it with Brett Goldstein and Bill Lawrence, star, writer, and executive producer. So we talked, you know, three days after the strike had started. So it was a really unique time to talk to him because I think I really have liked a lot of what he's written and I kind of wanted to dig into how his brain works as a writer, you know, forgetting Sarah Marshall was such a, a personal uh, film for him. And, and he's written the Muppets, he's written a bunch of books and some kids books. And so my intention before the strike had started was to really focus on the writing. Um, but, uh, you know, he had to be pretty careful with that. Um, they, they were working on the second season of the show, um, but obviously have come to a halt there. So, um, but we still were able to get into a lot of what he was able to do creating this, this character at the center of the show. I love how many eras of television he's bridged. You know, we got Freaks and Geeks, you got How I Met Your Mother, now like the streaming era of these really ambitious, interesting shows. I mean, he, at this point, he must know how television works better than almost anyone working. Yeah, he, he said he had, you know, he wasn't going to say yes to TV again uh, unless it really was the right thing and, and probably not something he'd have to commit to for nine years again. <laughs> so, um, you know, he talks quite a bit about why he decided uh, this was the right thing to say yes to. Well, let's hear your conversation with Jason Siegel. Today, I am so excited to welcome Jason Siegel. He's the co-creator, star, writer, and executive producer of the Apple TV series Shrinking. Hi. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for doing this. Um, I loved the show. I think you guys created a really incredible balance with tone, which I think is really hard to do with a show like this. But I do want to go back to the beginning. And from what I understand, Brett Goldstein and Bill Lawrence came to you with this idea. Can you tell me a little bit about what their pitch was to you at the um, in those early days? Yeah. Um, I got a cold call from Bill, Bill Lawrence, um, who, if you're listening and don't know who he is, he made Scrubs and Ted Lasso and a bunch of other great things. And uh, this is about maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago. And he said, hey, I'm trying to figure out what my next show is. You want to try to do something together? Which you didn't just, know him at all. I had met him once at a dinner party, you know, like 10 years ago. Um, but the reason I found out later, this is like life is so weird the reason that that call happened, he he lied to me and said like, oh, you've been on my mind. I've been watching your work. I like your stuff. The real reason it turns out is his producing partner, Jeff, was in the small town that I live in. And I was taking a walk. Like I take these long meandering walks where I'm listening to music. I, I think I was probably listening to like Science Sealed Delivered, I'm Yours, kind of dancing around. <laughs> and apparently Jeff saw me. And texted Bill, hey, just saw Jason Siegel. He seems like a happy guy. We should work <laughs> with him. <laughs> so that's that's the real truth of how this stuff goes down. Um, but so anyways, we started kind of sharing ideas back and forth. And nothing was quite right, especially because my target was pretty narrow if I was going to do TV again. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on a sitcom for like a decade. Yep. And... I feel very grateful and lucky. I want to caveat about that. Like it is a dream job and it changed my life and all that, but it is very repetitive. And I think by nature of a sitcom too, kind of the point is that it's repetitive. You're supposed to be able to check in at any episode when it's in syndication and things stay pretty similar episode by episode. And that was okay in my twenties, but I'm in my forties now and I'm more aware of time and how this stuff, you know, ends, you yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, and so I was like, if I want to do, if I'm going to do TV again, it has to be this hybrid of stuff that I've been interested in, which is, I, I still love comedy. That's something I'm like really interested in and I study. Um, but I had spent the past like 10 years trying to get good at drama and learning as much about it as I could. Cause I, I, I really do view all this stuff as craft. Like I think, there's talent at the beginning and talent probably is the platform by which you even have a chance. But then I, my personal experience is that it's as craft and learning and like a skill set. And I knew that from comedy and it turns out for me, it's true in drama too. But anyways, all that is to say, finally he and Brett, after I expressed this to him, I needed something that was going to, be interesting to do for a long period of time. He and Brett pitched me this idea about um, a shrink who was grieving himself and basically going through a nervous breakdown while he continued to practice therapy and that there would be this kind of even mix of big comedy and set comedy pieces, but also real pathos of um, we were going to handle the grieving as honestly as possible. And that seemed like this really tasty mix of everything I was looking for. Yeah. So tell me about creating the character of Jimmy, because, I mean, because he is grieving the loss of his wife, he 
does some stuff that could make him very unlikable, but you continue to root for him. Um, And I don't know if it's just because you're so apparently a happy guy and charming that it works so well. But when it came to writing him, what, how did you guys sort of figure out that balance? Um, well, I mean, I'll be personal with you. I I don't wake up happy. You know, Mm. I wake up having to do a lot of work to get to happy and me taking long meandering walks, listening to signs sealed and delivered is, uh, less the expression of a happy-go-lucky guy and more someone who's working pretty hard to get to zero, you know? And I think that that was part of the idea of building the character of someone who outwardly had to appear like he had it together because he's practicing therapy on people who need him, but privately was having a very different emotional experience. So that was something that I could relate to. And then we had a very candid talk, um, and like a stroke of self-awareness because I have to write for myself all the time. I wrote mm-hmm. a lot of those movies that I made and yep. I like writing a lot. Um, although I need to be careful because while we are on strike, I can't really talk about writing very much. Right. But um, in terms of acting, one of the things that I'm aware of is that for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the shape of my face or because I played your best friend for a million years (laughs) and was in your house or did all those movies where it was just about friends, you know, like these, these are your friends. Or like the Muppets. I mean, the most lovable characters in the world. I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, I guess I should own it a little bit. I'm lovable, but (laughs) I seem to have, I, I built up some currency and we had this discussion of like, let's spend it. Like, I think that this show is the most interesting if you start somebody at true rock bottom and watch him pull his way out. And rock bottom is messy. Rock bottom is sloppy and scrambly and you do regrettable things and you have to build your way back by, you know, starting to find some esteemable behavior and it needs to start on the other side of that line. And so we had a talk of like, Hey guys, I think I can pull it off. Like make him wrong. Have him be doing a bunch of stuff that is pushing the limit of likability and let me, let me crawl my way out of it. And I I think it worked. Yeah. Was there, I mean, everyone in Hollywood has a therapist, but was there much you had to do to prepare to perform this when it came to like researching the life of a therapist or the mindset of what makes a person choose that profession? I had seen a, uh, you know, I have seen a bunch of therapists in my life. Um, so I had that experience. Um, and I identified something that like the show is kind of rallying against, which is the, the stagnancy that you can get into in therapy of, is it actually designed for progress? It's unclear. Or is it a receptacle for some practices? to come and talk about your stuff, but not really get better. Like just keep coming back every week. Um, and there is this man named Phil Stutz, who Jonah did a documentary about on on uh, Netflix, who it's, again, like, I, I don't know what we're allowed to say. It's loosely based on this guy. And we talked to him and there was this approach that he had of both he and his patients were tired of being stuck. And you're sitting there as a therapist, just like you are in friendships, right? Like you're sitting at this table with your friends and someone is complaining about this relationship they're in for a year. And you're like, 
oh my God, just leave, <laughs> just leave them. It is so clear when they did this and this and this that it meant this and everyone can see it except the patient. And a therapist is having a very similar experience. They're just not allowed to do it. Or are they? This guy just started saying, no, don't do that anymore. I'll tell you how we fix this. You're going to stop doing that. And instead, you're going to do this and your life's going to get better. And so people were walking out of his door with a lot of hope because there was a plan. Um, so I really identified with that idea. Yeah. The first time Jimmy does that to one of his patients, I was like, oh, no, this is, I know. This is not going to you don't you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah. And we tried. It was really important to us to like honor that there's also a reason you don't do that. So right. some of these things go well and some of them don't, you know, there's varying degrees of success and failure to these, uh, this new method. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the reviews director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. And obviously having Harrison Ford in your cast is a, a pretty big deal. And, and I've read some interviews where you talk about how he sort of disarms you when you're first meeting him. So you're not like, oh, my God, this is the icon Harrison Ford, you know, uh, which is a, a smart move of his. But I, I'm curious how else he maybe surprised you as a scene partner. You have this kind of idea when you work with someone who has worked so much and is so good at what they do, right? That perhaps they have their bag of tricks and you're just going to get, you know, variations on a theme of what has worked for a long, long time, which, I mean, that would be fine too, you know? <laughs> uh, it's so good. <laughs> and I've been around that. I've been around that a little bit. It was really interesting because this was weirdly... Like Harrison's gotten a chance to be wry, but he hasn't had to do like big comedy. He hasn't had to do moves, right. you know? Right. And so at first, all we could imagine was like, we will do comedy around Harrison Ford and he'll be gruff, you know? And you can kind of see it at the, that that's what it is at the beginning of the season. And then at some point, like Jessica and I, are riffing and doing, you know, like kind of improv comedy riff in these scenes. And I just noticed like a kind of like this look in Harrison's eye of like glee and competitiveness and like the healthy kind of competitiveness, like this look of like, oh, we're doing this now. And then all of a sudden you see Harrison start to jump into the ring. And this dude is funny. Like, he's present and alive. There is a scene, for example, just to show you, like, the power of his improv. 
there's a scene where I'm at the door and he's throwing me some potatoes mm-hmm. and he says, take a, take them. And then he says this line. It's like, he's like, roast them, boil them, put them in an oven, eat them raw, eat them cooked. <laughs> I don't care. And that's all improv. All of a sudden, like he is owning his character and he's, uh, he's a rock star, man. And so then I find comedy like really exhilarating. I find it with drama too, but there is something about comedy that's like alive. You're, tr- you're really trying to catch this. You're, you're trying to catch these moments. To, to me, the funniest comedy, right? Like there are great lines in the show and we have an amazing writing staff. And again, I'm a writer also, and it's something I really value. I tend to remember most the stuff where I feel like, oh, that couldn't have been written. Like there, there's an alive moment that just happened between those two. Um, so those are the things I'll remember most with Harrison. And you talk about Harrison being such a veteran, but you know the reality is you were on your first major show when you were 19. Like you've been doing this a long time. Isn't it well. so crazy? <laughs> it, I can't imagine joining this universe at such a young age, but I, I'm curious how having that kind of experience sort of influenced the choices you make even now. Well, I had a big like existential crisis when How I Met Your Mother ended about my relationship to work um, because at some point I was like really winning work. You know, I had um, movies firing really well. I had How I Met Your Mother on the air, which was doing really well. I was basically, I, I had this little period where I could do anything I wanted and was writing. And it just felt like, well, here you are. And I was very unhappy and I couldn't figure out why. And so when How I Met Your Mother ended, I spent a long time, like honestly, like five years trying to figure out my relationship to work in a way that would be sustainable for me and interesting for me. And I would feel like it was worth trading my time for, you know, cause this, this becomes like your, uh, it's like your beloved, this job. And it, and it can be a bit of a abusive relationship too, because, uh, when it loves you, it loves you so much and it feels just like love. But then when it, then when it turns on you, it's kind of absent and then it comes mm-hmm. back and, uh, like, I just can't quit you acting, you know? Um, <laughs> but I think, that, <laughs> I think that one of the things that I realized, like when I made Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which I wrote, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Really, really honest about who I was at 24 years old, mm-hmm. 25, whatever. I had just gone through a big breakup. I was like really overreacting to it. It felt like the world had ended and I wrote, a character like that. And it just, it was the best I could do at total emotional honesty at that age. Right. And it was weird and all that stuff. It was like Dracula puppet musical. And it was so reflective of who I am. (laughs) But then I, I I didn't, like you said, I started really young. Right. So I'm kind of learning as I go. And I didn't know that when something goes well, there are then a lot of reasons for people and yourself, because you're responsible too, but to stretch it as far as it'll go. So then you start making these kind of facsimile copies, variations Mm -hmm. of the things that are going well until they stop working. And that's not making art, you know, it's, um, it's kind of like cashing in 
which is fine to do, but I couldn't figure out why I wasn't feeling satisfied. There's no challenge, yeah, doing this. Yeah, there's no thing. challenge, and also you're not doing this thing, which I think I asked. So, so in that period when I was trying to figure it out, I only took projects where I could be around people I really admired, so I could ask them a lot of questions. Because I read this crazy interview between <laughs> Michael Jackson, not Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson and Kobe Bryant, where. Okay. Yeah, it was just crazy. It was in Sports Illustrated where Michael Jackson basically told Kobe Bryant his rookie year. He was like, when you are around people you admire, do not be a fan. Be an interviewer. Mm -hmm. Ask them every question that you feel like will be a helpful tool for your journey, right? Because they know stuff. And it really made an impression on me. So I'd ask all these people these questions. How do you choose projects? How long do you wait between projects? You know, like really reductive stuff. And I asked one friend, like, what is art? And he said, art is performing an act of self-exploration on behalf of an audience, hmm. which resonates with my style of acting, which is kind of a surrogate. Like, I am you in this. For the next half hour, I'm you. For the next two hours, I'm you, you know? And, like, what do I want to go through on behalf of all of us that maybe will be interesting to watch because, like, you get to kind of go through it through me, you know? Yeah. It's like what Kermit the Frog does or Tom Hanks or Jimmy Stewart, this kind of surrogate-style acting. Right. Um, and I realized I wasn't really at – some, at some point I had stopped picking a thing that I was trying to go through in each project and going through it. And so now I choose things where, like, okay, for the next however long this project is, it's my job – to go through something on film. And in this one, it's grief. It's interesting because I, when I was thinking back on your projects, even if you look at something like Forgetting Sarah Marshall, it, there's a vulnerability there that I think is really brave. Like you don't have to do, you're, as you're saying, you could just sort of do light comedy that doesn't require that. But this show requires that, I think, as well. I think that uh, this is not a skill nor a talent. I think it's a, maybe a, a defect that I have. A curse, yeah. Yeah, that I've used for, you know, artistic purposes. But I think that I maybe feel things 1.5 times the amount that is the right size. You know, it's like yeah. in life also. Joy feels so joyful, but pain feels very painful. And it's all just a little much. You know, <laughs> the way I'm going through it. So it makes it very easy to perform those things because that's that's a lot of times like, you know, this like 10% too much is a pretty good area for acting maybe, yeah. you know? Was the goal from the beginning, because you're a pretty prolific writer. I mean, you've written books plus all these screenplays. And was the goal always to do both, write and act or? no. Uh, I would love a life where I just got offered awesome acting roles and I just did that. I find acting so peaceful and so easy. When I say easy, it's like there's a ton of work. I But I find all of that is done in prep. Like for me, the only part of acting that's hard is prep. Mm -hmm. Getting through the fear, addressing the fear, making sure you know your lines perfectly, uh, staying open. Staying in shape, which I hate. Like, you know, there's some stuff that is not pleasant. But then you get to set 
And I find it's like surfing. All the work was done on the sand. And now you're in the ocean. Someone's telling you where to go, what time, you know, work starts, bringing you to set. You're with your other actors. And then your job is just to be present, right? Like the wave is in charge when you're acting. When you're writing, it is like this constant exercise in self-loathing. Like you have this idea that excites you. And then you're like, oh, no, it doesn't exist. Mm. And now I have to make it exist. And every day you wake up and you could be writing. So if you have any form of OCD or self-loathing or I'm the only one who's going to make this happen, right. you wake up every morning feeling like, why aren't I writing? I see. But you know what I mean? Yeah. But for me, it's kind of been the only way that I can play the parts I want. Interesting. And would I write if I just got offered stuff? Uh, probably. Like, I would probably find that I love it. But right now, my relationship to it is sort of like, I have to make manifest stuff, mm-hmm. you know? That makes sense. And the show has been renewed for season two. Where are you guys in the process right now? We're on strike. Yeah, but the, the the scripts were being written pre-strike. Yeah, or we had a, we have a writers' yet. room. We have a really beautiful plan for next year, okay. and uh, it's going to be fantastic um, when you can do it. Yeah, when we can do it. Yeah, so we're on this sort of indefinite hold, as everybody is, while um, while they figure out some really really important stuff around writers and compensation and rights and all that all that sort of stuff. Where were you at when the last strike? was happening that was 2007 2008? yeah I was on how I met your mother at the time okay do you have yeah. any memories from back then um yeah I remember it being really awkward because we had to shoot for a little we had some scripts banked and yeah. so we had to, we shot for a little while through the strike and it was a very unpleasant and painful thing to pass my writers on the way to set and I was very lucky when we ran out of, uh, not lucky happy when we ran out of scripts yeah I hope it gets resolved soon. I can't wait for the second season of Shrinking. So, oh, thanks. Uh, I'm really excited to see it, and, c- and congrats again on this first season. It's it's some really special work. Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. This was a great talk. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday with our roundtable conversation and our Oscar flashback for AAPI Heritage Month on Flower Drum Song. So watch it along with us. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider or on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. And Richard. Rylaws. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs.